Indeed, it is no secret what God can do. The Bible boldly speaks of His matchless grace. And now we commemorate that grace in giving, not from a sense of compulsion, but from a sense of great gratitude. And we do this through the King of kings and Lord of lords, even Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, we're all still here, aren't we? <laughs> it's good to see you here. However, I'd rather see you in the air. Over at Austin Bible Church, you, you may tell someone goodbye and they don't say, I'll see you later. They say, I'll see you here, there, or in the air. In fact, they have a pen that says there. Here, there, or in the air. Well, it's God's timing, and we just keep on percolating, growing in grace and knowledge until he decides to take us home. So let's prepare ourselves this morning in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, the option of naming privately to God the Father any unconfessed sins which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that you are in control of all things. We don't have to worry. We don't have to fret. You will take us home when the time is right. In the meantime, we have your phenomenal grace that is always sufficient. We live in the devil's world. We're in enemy territory. We need your word, the strength of your word every single day. So we pray that you will help us to focus this morning and let your word have a mighty work in our life, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll take your Bibles and turn to Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6. The Israelites have crossed the Jordan River, which was a, probably about a mile wide on dry ground. There were some goings-on after they got to the other side. Joshua has been introduced to his commander-in-chief, the Lord Jesus Christ, who appeared with a sword drawn. A lot of interesting things happened. Now, in verse 6, excuse me, chapter 6, in verses 2, three, two through 5, you have the Lord speaking to Joshua. He's going to tell him what's going to go down, essentially. And then Joshua talked to the people. He talked to the people in verses 6 and 7, in verse 10 and 16, and verse 16 through 19 and verse 22. So what we have is the Lord speaking to Joshua, and he gave Joshua the promise. He said, the city, the king, and the soldiers are all yours. The victory he had already given him. And he informed him of that. But Joshua didn't inform the people. After God spoke with Joshua, then Joshua goes to the people and he starts giving them orders. He starts telling them, move out and we're going to do it this way. And he gives them some pretty strange instructions, doesn't he? They're going to... 
march around Jericho. This was the first city that they were going to come in contact with. First time that they have, uh, they're going to, what they thought was going, go into battle on the other side of the Jordan, engage the Canaanites and the other pagans. And so he gave them some instructions that were somewhat strange. They were ready to do battle. And Joshua says, move out. And every morning we're going to go to the city of Jericho and we're going to march around it, circle it one time and come back to camp. And there's going to be certain other instructions. They were to have um, seven priests who were going to carry seven trumpets. All in all, they were going to march around the city for seven days. And on the seventh day, they were to circle the city seven times. Now, what is this with all the sevens? Seven is a huge number in the Bible. I don't mean as far as I'm talking about importance. In fact, I'm going to show you some things this morning on the board that I think you will find interesting about the sevens. first place we're going to go to, you don't have to go in your Bible because I'm going to uh, give you the first verse of the Bible. Now, the first birth verse of the Bible is astounding in itself. And that is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Talk about starting out with a bang. I don't think you could have a better introduction, a better first verse than that. So it's astounding in its content as to what it says. But there are several features in this verse that has to do with seven. And I'll show you what I'm talking about. Now on the board, what you have at the top is verse 1 of the Bible, Genesis 1-1 in Hebrew. That would be this top line. And then under it, you have the English. The word order is not exactly the same as the English, but it's pretty close. You have, I better read it off my computer instead of turning around. In the Hebrew, this is, Barashet bara Elohim et Hashamayim. Va'et ha'aretz. That's it in the Hebrew. Now, if you'll notice, I know this may look like just a lot of squiggly lines to you, but each one of these are a word. You see the spaces in between each one of the words. So to start with, when we see this as far as being related to seven, how many words are there? There's seven words, aren't there? Then you look at it a little closer, and if you count the letters we find that there are 28 letters. Now, each one of these big things up here are Hebrew letters. Underneath here, you'll see dot and dashes and uh, so forth. Those are vowels. You don't count the vowels in the Hebrew because they didn't write the vowels. They spoke them, but they did not write them. It wasn't until centuries later, thank the Lord, that someone came up with the vowel points so that we're able to say it. Uh, be able to read it this way. So when we're talking about the number of letters, we're talking about actually the consonants, which are the, the big letters that you see up here. 
See, already we see that there are seven words and there's 28 letters in the first verse. And that is, a, we, we call it a feature or a fact of seven. And there's others that I'm going to point out to you that is interesting. In fact, I'm going to show you a lot more about seven that is interesting. By the way, the, the number seven signifies perfection or completion. And the number seven is used overwhelmingly more in the Bible than any other number. The next thing that we can focus on <coughs> is that uh, the first uh, three words, these first three words here, have 14 letters, and the last four words have 14 letters, which is what? Divisible by seven. And then we, we can see that the, the subject, which, uh, by the way, this is the subject. In the beginning, this is God created. And by the way, that word created is an interesting word. We could spend literally days just on this first verse showing you what it's all about. But uh, that word bara means to create something out of nothing. I challenge any of you to try that. Only God can do that. So he created the universe out of nothing. And then we have the, the first word uh, or the, uh, you have the subject and the object of the word, the earth, here's the object right here. This is the heavens and the earth. And each one of those uh, have seven letters in them, which, uh, of course, is, again, uh, a feature of seven. And then you have this middle word here is the little small word, and it plus the word to its left are seven letters plus the same word here and the and the word to its right have seven letters. And I'm not going to bore you with other features. There's 28 features that I could show you on this first verse. But you get the idea that seven is a pretty neat thing. But there's even more th things interesting. This, is, this, is, this blows my mind. By the way, I'm getting several of these facts out of a booklet from Noah Hutchins. Maybe you've heard of him before. It's called Astounding New Discoveries. And the whole book is about these features of seven and how only God could write a coherent, inerrant, plenary word that is, has to be inspired and still be able to have all these features in them uh, of seven. Now, in both the Greek and the Hebrew, and by the way, this, this, these features go out throughout the Bible both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And not only are there features in letters, that means derivative of seven, there's features in words. I gave you a few of them here. There's also features in sentences, paragraphs, and the entire book have these type of features. Uh, there's one work that is over, um, has over 40,000 different features in it with regards to the Bible. Uh, don't worry, we're not going to go through all those this morning. But uh, in the, both the Greek and the Hebrew, they don't have numbers like we do. Uh, at least they didn't. You know how we have one and two and three? They didn't have those. And when you read the Scriptures, they don't have those numbers. They use letters for numbers. And each letter of the alphabet, both Hebrew and Greek, have a number ascribed to it. 
like the first letter of the alphabet in the Hebrew is Aleph, and that would be a one-value uh, designation. In the Greek, it's Alpha. And by the way, you got Alpha, Bet, and the second letter in the Greek word is Beta. Anyway, a lot of interesting things there. But um, So every letter has a number is ascribed to it, and it's called a numeric value. So when you have several letters together that make up a word, then the word has a numeric value. You got that? So uh, some of the interesting things about this, uh, again, just going to the, the first, the first uh, verse, the nouns, God, heaven, and earth, have the numeric values. God has, if you added up the numeric values for God, it's 86. The numeric value for heaven is 395, and for earth is 296. See, you don't just go throughout the full alphabet if there's 26 uh, letters and each one has one. Once you get to a certain point, it may go from, from uh, 10 to 20 to 30 to 50 to 100, that type of thing. So it's interesting that God, heaven, and earth are the main words in that first verse, and they have a numeric value of 777, which is derivative of 7. I mean, uh, yeah. And then you have the verb in the sentence, uh, which was bara, has, which means uh, uh, created, has a numeric value of 203, which is 29 sevens. And then the, uh, it goes on and on with regards to the different numerical things. And I, I'm just skimming the surface, just telling you a little bit, but there's more I want to get to about the sevens. So uh, there are seven days in a week. The Sabbath was the seventh day. Every seventh year was a sabbatical year. Uh, that's when they wouldn't, they wouldn't plant Remember the Jews got in trouble for, because for 70 years they didn't take their, uh, actually it was 490 years, they didn't take their sabbatical rest for the land. And God said, okay, you don't want to take rest, you don't want to obey me, then you're going to get your 70 years of rest, only it's not going to be in Israel, it's going to be in Babylon. And he took them captive. That's another story. Then the, uh, <coughs> the 49th year was a year of jubilee. And that's when if you uh, had any kind of business arrangements, it all went back to the original owners at that time. Um, in Egypt, there were seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. Solomon was seven years building the temple. After it was completed, there was a feast for seven days. The Feast of Unleavened Bread lasted seven days, and Naaman washed seven times in the river. The book of Revelation use, uses the number seven 50 times. There's seven churches, seven lampstands, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven vials, seven spirits, seven stars, seven angels, seven heads, and seven plagues. And of course, some of these are used over and over. And it's, uh, I think it's actually a little over 50 times. Now, the number of Old Testament writers named in the Bible is exactly 21, which is, of course, uh, Three times seven. 
And then the numeric number of the Hebrew names is divisible by seven. Now, you know what I'm talking about, the numeric value, the number. That's the letters with the value of their numbers add up to 3,808, which is 544 times seven. There are seven Old Testament writers named in the New Testament. The numeric number of their Hebrew names is divisible by seven. It's 1,554, which is 222 times seven. Interesting, huh? David is the name most used in the Old Testament. It is used 1,134 times, which is divisible by seven, 162 times seven. The name Jeremiah is found in seven Old Testament books in seven different forms in the Hebrew. The number of times it is found in these books is 147 times or 21 times 7. Moses' Moses' name occurred exactly 847 times in the Bible, which is 121 times 7. I want to just stop there. I mean, I'm throwing a lot of facts and figures at you here. But you know that the writers of the Bible, most of them did not know each other. And they came from varied backgrounds. And sometimes there were hundreds and hundreds of years between the time in which they lived. John was the last writer, and he wrote, well, actually, Jesus Christ wrote the book of Revelation, and he used John to do it. Now, when John was using Moses' name in the book of Revelation, he could have used it maybe one more time or one less time, but in the, in the flow of Scripture, giving the complete revelation of God that is necessary for us to understand who and what He is, He used it in such a way that it wound up not being um, 846 times or 849 times, but 847 times. You, you, are you beginning to get the feel for how miraculous this is? In the sphere of light, there are seven colors which merge to farm light. In the sphere of music, there are seven whole notes in the scale. The human body is renewed or changed every seven years. Uh, that's not talking about a spiritual renewal. That's talking about a physical renewal. Your body is constantly working and it's throwing off. If, let me put it this way. If, and this is a big if, you started eating right, exercising and taking your vitamins and doing everything that you're supposed to do, and you didn't have any disease, and in a seven-year period, you'd have a completely new body. And that happens every seven years. A man's years, a man's years is described to be three score and ten, which is 70. Score is 20, and then you have 10 on top of that, which is 70 years. The generation, excuse me, the gestation period for humans is 280 days, which is 40 times 7. For a mouse or a hen, it's 21 days, which is 3 times 7. For a rabbit or a rat, it's 28 days, 4 times 7. For a cat, it's 56 days, 8 times 7. For a dog, it's 63 days. 9 times 7. For a lion, it's 98 days. 14 times 7. And for a sheep, it's 147 days or 21 times 7. That looks like it's more than a coincidence to me. What do you say? 
So when we see that the Israelites, when they came to the city of Jericho, and God told them to go seven days, carry seven trumpets, seven priests, the seventh day to circle it seven times, I think he's trying to tell us something, that his word is perfect and it's complete. And that's what the number of seven means. Now, I won't bore you any more with that, but I think you've got enough information with sevens for right now. Um, well, I have more about it. We need to press on. So, when we're looking at the Bible and it's talking about things, these type of numbers and so forth, we're not just looking at something that is arbitrary. It all fits and meshes in all together. Sixty-six books of the Bible act as one, and they all intermesh to where it's essentially one revelation of God, even though it has all the different authors from different backgrounds and so forth. What a book. So let's go back to the book to verse 10. We're in Joshua chapter 6 and verse 10. We've already seen that, of course, they were to carry the ark with them as they went around the city of Jericho. The ark was a representation of uh, Jesus Christ. And I don't want you all to see that right now because we're going to the Bible, okay? Turn in your Bible to Joshua chapter 6, verse 10. And so they've... They're doing what he said. In verse 10, Joshua is going to give them more information. But Joshua commanded the people saying, You shall not shout. And every time shout, I want you to circle or underline it because there's significance about shout. It's used several times in, this, in, in these scriptures. And I'll give you the grammatical uh, indication of the term that will help you see something that you don't see there in the English. But Joshua commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout, nor let your voice be heard, nor let a word proceed out of your mouth, until the day I tell you to shout. There's your second shout. Now that first shout is in the imperfect mood. The imperfect mood represents ongoing action uh, in the past. In other words, they were not to, not only were they not to say, shout or say anything, and it be ongoing, we find out the second time that this word is used in verse 10, shout, is in the imperative mood. He says, you're not to shout or keep on shouting. You're to keep your mouth shut as you go around and circle the, the city until I tell you to shout. And when he tells them to shout, then when he says so, then do it. This is a, a command. And then he says, then you shall shout. Now that last shout, uh, you can abbreviate these if you want to do this. The imperfect tense is hard to abbreviate. Just write that one out. Because if you try to abbreviate the imperfect tense, it's I-M-P, and that stands for the imperative mood, which is the second one. The first one is imper imperfect. The second one is um, imperative to do it. And then the third one is the perfect tense. Each one of these words in the, the morphology of that word is significant. The, the perfect tense, tense means that something is done in the past 
and the results go on. So when he says, then you shall shout, that shout, the result of that goes on and on. So that's hard enough, isn't it? One of the things we saw last time is that the people were to go out and follow what appeared to be silly instructions, not knowing why. Joshua did not tell them that God had already given them the city and these were the things they were supposed to do. They didn't know that how they were going to take the city. They thought they were going to engage in battle. And every morning he would get up and say, all right, let's get up, we're going to circle the city, come back, and then we're going to rest and we'll do the same thing the next day. Now, we went over last week about how that would probably get to the point where it was embarrassing. The people on the wall were expecting an attack, and all they did was go around. They didn't say a word. They just blew the trumpets. And they probably looked at each other. Well, that's strange. Where's the attack? The second day? Here they come again. Get ready. Same thing. Went around the city, blew the trumpets, didn't say a word, and went back. And they probably kept looking. What is this? Now, by, probably by the fifth or sixth day, it was becoming a joke. <laughs> Here they come. Look at them. Okay, go ahead. Toot your horns. You know, that was probably the attitude that they were taking. They were really caught completely off guard the seventh day. Now, the seventh day when they circled the city seven days, they probably thought, well, this is different at least, but it's getting a little bit monotonous, circling seven times. And then, we, then we're going to get the shout. Well, we'll get to there soon enough. So isn't that something that we have to face in our life is every day we get up and we do essentially the same thing over and over again. And we don't know what the end game is, but God does. And it's for our purpose. If, you get, if you're in a routine and you think, boy, this is old and this is drudgery or whatever, God is allowing you to stay in that routine because He can shut it down in a heartbeat. He can close doors. He can have things happen to where you are relocated that everybody that you know may... Uh, you might not see them again. You may, there's so many things that can happen. And so just the, the test is when you're in that routine is to cu- keep trusting and obeying. That's what they did. And because they trusted and obeyed, God gave them the city and it was a tremendous victory. Uh, verse 11. So he had the ark of the Lord taken around the city, circling it once. Then they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Now Joshua rose early the morning, in the morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew trumpets. And the armed men went before them And the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while they continued to blow the trumpets. You remember the significance of that. When they crossed the river, they were not to get within about a half mile of the ark. They were to keep their distance. But now we have them circling the city. The ark is going around each time. There are soldiers in front, soldiers in the rear. Why are they able to get close to the ark now? And the significance of that is... When they crossed the river, God did not use the people at all. He did the thing himself. The the miracle was totally upon him. 
and they walked across on dry ground. Here it's different because he's actually using the people. He's going to flatten the wall so they can run in and take it, but he's using them, so now there's no need for them to have a certain distance away from the ark. Verse 14, Thus the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp and did so for six days. Uh, six days may not sound so like it's a, a lot, but under these circumstances, it is a lot. It's like whenever you have a pause in a conversation, it may seem like an eternity, but it might only be 10 or 15 seconds. Same thing here. Six days doing this doesn't seem like a lot unless you're there, unless you're going through it. Then it seems very, uh, it gets old in a hurry. Verse 15, Then it came about on the seventh day that they rose at the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only on, the, on, on that day they marched around the city seven times. That was the seventh day. Verse 16, And it came about at the seventh time when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout! Underline that. That's the imperative. That's the imperative that we saw over in verse 10. Now's the time to do it. Can you imagine they had all this built-up uh, built frustration? They couldn't say a word, nothing, all this time going around. So finally we said, okay, shout. Do you think that was a loud shout? They got it all out right then. Uh, that, was, that, that had to be a, a mighty shout, no doubt. Then he says, uh, by the way, that shout's in the imperative mood. Then he says, for the Lord has given you the city. Now, has given is a verb, and it's in the perfect tense. That means he gave it to you in the past, and right now you're just going to take it. It was already yours. This is when Joshua is telling them through this word what God had told him way back there seven days earlier, that I'm giving you the city, the, the king, the soldiers, everything. It's yours. Now, he's telling them in this one word in the perfect tense when he shout, said shout in the perfect tense, they got it. They knew the city was theirs. So, and then he says, And the city shall be under the ban. It and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house, underline that, I'll show you why in a minute, who are with her in the house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. So, we have the word ban. Now, ban isn't a very good word there. In the Hebrew, the word is karem. And that's C-H-A-R-E-M. And it's transliterated in the Greek, karem. It's something that is devoted or dedicated to the Lord. You see, you've heard of the, uh, the first fruits, the feast of the first fruits and so forth. The first fruits went to who? God, right. It went to, to, to the Lord. So uh, this is the first city that they're going to come in contact with. So it would be the same as the first fruits and it's dedicated to the Lord. In other words, they, he's saying you don't take any spoil. You don't touch a thing. Now this doesn't mean much to us. But in the ancient times, even a lot, even this is, I guess holds true even into modern times, armies used to survive and live off the bounty or the booty that they took from the cities. When they sacked a city, they took everything that was valuable. 
all the food, all the valuables, everything they could carry, it was theirs. But God is telling them here, this is karam. That word in the Hebrew means this is devoted to God. It is going to be a sacrifice, as it were. It's going to be an offering to God as the first fruit offering would be. So you don't touch a thing. Now that would be kind of hard to do. You know what they had to do? Trust the Lord. Because where are they going to get the food? They have to eat. All the valuables that they had, there were valuables there. And he's going to tell them all the gold and silver and metal and so forth, you take that into the temple treasury. But you don't take it. That's, all, that, that's what's involved in this word here in verse uh, 16. But as for, <clears throat> So the, bed, the city was under a bam that is a carom. They couldn't take a thing. And, they, and, but, and again, he reminds them. Now, there's going to be a house. And what is hanging out of that window? A red rope, significance in the color there. The red blood is what uh, the blood of Christ is a, a term that is used for the spiritual death of Christ on the cross. And so they weren't to touch the, anyone in that house. Verse 17. And the shedi, uh, city shall be under a ban. Okay, I did 17. 18. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban, lest you covet them. Take some of the things under the ban so you would make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. But all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Verse 20. So the people shouted, the priests blew the trumpets, and it came about when the people heard the sound of the trumpet that the people shouted. Now, here is the imperfect tense of shout. That means they just did say, hooray, and that was it. They continued to shout. I, I don't know how many people there were. There may have been maybe a half a million or a million people that are actually circling the camp. You get a million people shouting, and you've got some noise. And they would continue to do it. That's the imperfect, uh, imperfect tense. So they were to shout with a great shout. That shout is just simply a noun. And the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. Now, they were circling the, the, the city. It was surrounded by them. And when they shouted, the trumpets blew and they shouted, the walls fell. And when the walls fell, you can imagine every, there were people inside that were, they were in shock. Many of them were injured. And wherever you were, he told them, you could just go straight ahead. So you had a circle converging in on them, and there was no contest, of course. Verse 21, And they utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and women, young and old, and ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. Now, I'm not going to stop here and go into the doctrine of annihilation and how what God does is always righteous and just, and it actually was protecting his own people, the Israelites, from being infected by the pagan. They were so desperately wicked it would be hard to describe. And so this is something that God had, had ordered them to do. And I've already covered that twice, so I'm not going to cover it again here. It's on the tapes if you want it. Verse 22, And Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all the things out of there 
as you have sworn to her. Now, two things are interesting here. First of all, I want you to underline. It says, go into the harlot's house. Underline it or put it, because I'll explain why that's important in just a moment. But here he is still calling Rahab a harlot. Now, he's not being hard on her. This is one of, uh, just another example that someone who puts their faith alone in Christ alone, it doesn't matter what they were engaged in, has eternal life. So here you have Rahab the harlot, which is in the line of Christ. Again, showing grace. Now, the reason I had you put there that in verse 22 go into the harlot's house you know where that house was built jericho actually had two walls it had an outer wall and it had an inner wall and the space in between it was bridged and houses were on top of those walls rahab's house was on top of the wall according to joshua chapter 2 verse 15 it says her house was on the wall when they shouted and they and the walls fell what happened to Rahab's house? It stood there. What a coincidence. Who would ever thought? All the walls around Jericho fell flat except the section that was right under Rahab's house. Now there's a, there's a message there for us that I'm going to go into in a couple of verses in, in a minute. I'm going to expand upon this. But suffice it to say at this point, God knows how to deliver his own people. This was the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter what calamity falls, a nation, a city, a family, or whatever else it is, God can protect those who trust and obey him. Now you can take that to the bank. So her house, they went into the house which was located on the wall, which God preserved. And bring the woman and all she has out of there as you have sworn to her. Now, this appears that not only that she had family members that were going to be saved, but it sounds like whatever valuables she had were taken out also. And they had to remember over in chapter 2, we were looking at Rahab, and she saved the two spies and she lied to the people. And we went over, well, what's this deal about a lie? We went into all that. But she made sure you give me your word. You make a covenant with me that you're going to remember that I have saved your hide. And when y'all come in to take the city, that you will spare us. And they said, okay, you take that red rope and put it outside your window. And if you want any of your family members to be saved also, you have them inside the house. You see why it was important to be inside the house now? They were inside the house. This is tantamount to being in Christ. And so they were delivered and saved. So her family and everything. This is just expanding on what she had already had. Verse 23, So the young men who were spies went in and brought Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all she had. They also brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. So here you have... Um, Fulfillment of God's promise. And the soldiers were warned, you better not 
touch a hair on their head or else you're going to be had. And they did what, they, what, what he said and they brought, brought her out and placed her outside of the camp of Israel. She was outside the camp for a while. This would be a, a thing of being unclean for a period of time. And then she would, she would later be uh, put into the camp. Now, verse 24. And they burned the city with fire and all that was in it, only the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Now, this is an interesting thing here, I think. This is the... This is Haley's Bible's handbook. And in this, it has kind of an outline of the different uh, books of the Bible, but it also has archaeological finds and things that I think are interesting. Now, we saw in verse 24, and they burned the city with fire. And in this section, page 161 of Haley's Bible handbook, I'm going to uh, quote two short paragraphs here. It's talking about Jericho. Quote, They burnt the city with fire. This is verse 24. Then he says, Signs of the conflagration destruction were very marked. Garstang, was the guy doing this, found great layers of charcoal and ashes and wall ruins reddened by fire. The outer wall suffered the most. Houses alongside the wall were burned to the ground. The stratum generally was covered with a deep layer of black burnt debris. Under there were pockets of white ash overlaid uh, with a layer of fallen reddish brick. What we're doing here is substantiating through archaeology the veracity of God's Word. Keep yourselves from... The devoted thing, verse 18. Garstang found that under the ashes and fallen walls and the ruins of storerooms an abundance of foodstuffs, wheat, barley, dates, lentils, and such, turned to charcoal by intense heat, untouched and uneaten evidence that the conquerors refrained from appro appropriating the foods. This is from archaeology. Just thought I'd throw that in. Verse 25, however, Rahab the harlot and her family and household and all she had, Joshua spared, and she has lived in the midst of Israel. See there, in the midst of Israel? In verse 23, she, she was saved, but she was put outside the camp. Now in verse 25, says that she lived, lived in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid messengers who Joshua sent out to spy, to spy out Jericho. Now, there's a, a few verses that I want to give you, and I want to make a point here. I certainly don't want to miss this point. I think I'll put it up on the board. I don't know if it's big enough for you all to see. God knows how to deliver His children from calamity. Do you get this? More than anything, I want you to remember this, and I'm going to give you some scriptures. If He can, if he can deliver a harlot out of a city that was completely annihilated, everything was burned, everything that breathed died, and there was nothing left except Rahab and her family, a little section of wall left. If He can do that, 
You think He can protect you when the calamity hits? You think He can protect you from all of the adversity and all the troubles and woes that you have? Here's a few verses. Job chapter 5, verse 19. From six troubles He will deliver you. Even in seven, evil will not touch you. Peter, uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. And that word there really means trials. It means adversity. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. That was certainly true at Jericho, was it not? Psalm 34, 15 through 19. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off, cut off their memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of some of their troubles. Are you all looking? Are you all watching? No. To deliver them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. These are promises, folks. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 13. An evil man is ensnared by the transgressions of his lips, but, righteous, but the righteous will escape from trouble. This is talking about believers here. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is, is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. We are weak. All of us are weak. We can't, we can't deliver ourselves out of the snares and slings of the world, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we're operating on God's power. He can deliver us from whatever may come our way. You know what? We, we live in a time that is, I, I think it's on borrowed, borrowed time, don't you? I mean, things can change overnight into such a horrific set of circumstances that we can't even hardly contemplate. These verses need to be foremost in your mind at those times so you don't hit, hit the panic button. Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth, who have carried out His ordinances. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Now, there's many more of these, but this will kind of give you an idea of what Joshua chapter 6 is all about. We have a couple more verses and we'll be done. Verse 26. Then Joshua made them take an oath at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord is man who rises up and builds this city, Jericho, with the loss of his firstborn. He shall lay its foundation, and with the loss of his youngest son, he shall set up its gates. Now this is kind of strange. It's coming at the end of this. And this is not saying that Jericho would no longer be inhabited because we can go to the New Testament and we see uh, Jericho in various places. What it is talking about is that there is going to be a curse upon anyone who would be so audacious as to try to refortify that city. And we're going to see that indeed 500 years later this curse was applied to someone. If you'll turn in your Bibles to... 
1 Kings chapter 16. That's going back towards the back of your Bible. About uh, 500 years. 1 Kings chapter 16. And verse 34. This is when uh, King Ahab was on the throne. And verse 34 says, In his day, Halel, the uh, Bethelite, built Jericho... He laid its foundations with the loss of Abram, his firstborn, and set up its gates. Setting up its gates is the armaments. This is the fortifying the city. And set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Is God faithful? Does he mean business? Absolutely. Last verse is verse of chapter 6. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. Again, three times already God has said, I'm going to exalt you. In this day they will know that I will be with you in the same way that I was with Moses. And so we see that the fame of Joshua and what the Lord did went throughout the, the, uh, the, the country. Turn to Joshua 9.1 for just a moment. We'll just look at one verse there. Now it came about when all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland and on all the coast of the great sea, that would be the Mediterranean, toward Lebanon, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and Jebusite heard of it that they had gathered themselves together with one accord to fight with Joshua and with Israel. And so we see here that they had, all, they, they had heard the news of what happened to Jericho, so they were going to band together all these different heathen nations to stand against Joshua because his fame went throughout the land. Now Joshua was like Moses. Moses was said, was said to be the most humble man on earth during his day. Joshua was the same. He had great responsibility, great pressure upon him. But look what the Lord has done for him. Now through all this in chapter 6, what do we learn? We learn the importance to trust and obey. Even when you don't know what the Lord is doing in your life, He is busy doing something. And even though you think, well, tomorrow's going to be just like today, and the next day, and the next day, blah! Just remember, the Lord could change that in a heartbeat if He wanted to. It might be that He is trying to teach you patience. <laughs> it may, might be that He is trying to teach you that He is faithful, and the time element is of no consequence. It may be that he is training you to teach those leaders that he has put over you. These people were looking at Joshua when they said, okay, we're going to take the first city. Y'all go out there, circle the city, blow the horns, and we're going to do that for seven days. Uh, 
What about this Joshua? No, what did they do? They trusted him. He had a batting record, didn't he? He was the one that gave them instructions to cross the Jordan River. There is so much in this book of Joshua. I am so glad that the Lord led me to teach this book. I didn't know all these things were here, but I didn't know one thing. I couldn't go anywhere else except Joshua. I had to teach Joshua. Same thing happened when I taught First Kings years ago. I never tell anybody where I'm going next. We finish a, a series or we finish a book and they all are sitting there like this. Where are we going? I still remember the look on their face when I said, Okay, everybody open your Bibles to First Kings. They went, First Kings? Aren't you glad we did? The Word of God is alive and powerful, and I'm talking about all of it. At this time, I'd like everyone please to bow your heads and close your eyes. I ask you to do this for privacy. There may be some people in here that may be confused. They might not understand the depths of God's grace. They might not have the honor and the memories of trusting Him and seeing His faithfulness. But the biggest issue is what's going to happen to us after we die. If you don't know what's going to happen, the best news that you'll ever hear is that Jesus Christ has already taken care of that issue. He is the Son of God, and He went to the cross. He died for your sin and my sins. He died, He was buried, and He rose again, and now He offers eternal life to anyone who will trust Him and Him alone for it. That is the greatest gift that has ever been offered or ever will be offered. You receive that gift by simply believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can trust what He did on the cross and His atonement for your sins rather than your own works. And in that moment, you are born again. You become a royal family member of God and your ticket to heaven is guaranteed. But in the meantime, we are to grow in grace and knowledge and see the faithfulness of God. Father, we thank You for this time that we have to... Revel in the wonders of this book, Joshua. Help us to learn from what these people went through so we will avoid the same mistakes and that we too will learn to trust and obey. We pray this in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.